This is James Coover with K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat and Southwind District with your Extension Crop Report. It has been shown that cover crops, even those that are grazed, can greatly reduce weed pressure in the preceding summer crop. By blocking the sunlight from young weed seedlings, cover crops make a living mulch barrier that is effective for any annual weed. While the advantages of cover crops have been proven, there are still different philosophies about how to plant the soybeans or the corn into the cover crop. In general, there are two categories of plant into cover crop methods. Spray the cover crop and then plant, or plant and then spray the cover crop. Although the length of time between the spraying and the planting can greatly differ, affects the outcomes of the crop growth. There can be some issues with planting into living or dead cover crops. One issue is that it's simply difficult to run a planter through an overgrown, lanky cover crop. Many farmers have found that is why planting green or planting into a living cover crop tends to work better. The cover crop is still holding itself together and not as tough, so it doesn't tend to get wrapped around the planter. Another issue is that tall cover crops can act as a mulch against the corn or soybeans, just as it does against the weeds. Rolling the cover crop can only help knock it down, but can also align the cover in the direction of the planter wheels, making planting easier as well. Penn State Extension suggests to roll the cover crop in the direction of the planting before planting if the cover crop is over 12 inches tall. Rolling mature cover crop, such as rye, when it has gotten to the reproductive stages, can be all that is needed to kill the cover crop, so no herbicides are needed. This is something that is commonplace for organic farming. Although the thought of it makes me a little nervous, a study from South Dakota and some of the northern states found that soybean seedlings can be rolled up to the V3 stage without any yield loss. In fact, some studies have shown that rolling young soybean seedlings can provide an early season stress that results in more pods and higher yields later on. Apparently, the young soybeans are springy enough that the roller won't damage them, and the cover crop can help protect the soybeans from breaking. An old issue with planting into green cover crops is the problem with diseases and insects. While there is some truth to no green break between the cover crop and planted crop, this is often adjusted for with monitoring. Cutworms and armyworms are likely to be the biggest concern. The adult moth will lay their eggs in the green cover crop, but when the larvae hatch, there is only corn or soybean crop to eat. One issue that really can't be fixed is the fields with cover crops have colder soils in the spring. Not an issue with soybeans, but it can be with corn. It is hard to watch the neighbors planting corn before you, but an even germination due to warm soils is more important than planting corn at the earliest point possible. Some other planting tips from those who have been experimenting with planting into cover crops. Make sure the planter has enough ballast to push down against the cover crop. This will be less of an issue with the newer hydraulic down pressure planters. Use aggressive wavy coulters and row cleaners to push the cover crop out of the way. And also, consider installing more aggressive metal closing wheels rather than the rubber tire ones that work better with tilled soil. The idea of planting into cover crops is one that has both been around for decades but it's also coming back into fashion with new ideas, processes, and benefits. Next up, we'll have Wendy Powell, Livestock Production Agent for the Wildcat District. Hi, this is Wendy Powell the Wildcat Extension District, your Livestock Production Agent. January and February historically bring some of the coldest and most extreme conditions of the year. Weather can be one of the greatest challenges of managing animals during the winter. Most livestock producers appreciate that cold weather increases nutrient requirements. However, the more common questions are, when or under what condition should we respond to a cold weather event? Or, how should we respond? 
According to Justin Wagner, K-State Beef Systems Specialist, animals are most comfortable within the thermoneutral zone when temperatures are neither too warm nor too cold. During the winter months, cold stress can be experienced anytime the effective ambient temperature, which takes into account factors like wind chill and humidity, drops below the lower critical temperature. The lower critical temperature is influenced by environmental and animal factors, such as hair coat and body condition. In wet conditions, animals can begin experiencing cold stress at 59 degrees Fahrenheit, which would be a relatively mild winter day. However, if there's been enough time to develop a sufficient winter coat, the estimated lower critical temperature in dry conditions is 18 degrees Fahrenheit. Cold stress increases maintenance energy requirements, but does not impact protein, mineral, or vitamin requirements. The general rule of thumb for animals in good body condition is to increase the energy density of the ration by 1% for each degree Fahrenheit below the lower critical temperature. The classic response to cold stress in confinement situations is to increase voluntary intake. However, it's been documented that grazing beef cows may spend less time grazing as temperatures drop below freezing, which will reduce forage intake and make the challenge of meeting the cow's nutrient demands even greater. The traditional response to a cold weather event on many operations is to feed more of the current supplement being used or offer a larger amount of low quality hay. Although the additional supplement and hay may provide some additional energy, it may not be sufficient to meet the energy demands of a third trimester animal experiencing cold stress. Additionally, this strategy may lead to oversupplying protein. The extra hay offered simply replaces grazed forage. In this situation, energy is still limiting. Livestock managers should consider offering a relatively higher quality hay than the current forage being grazed or a small amount of grain mixed with the normal amount of protein supplement being used. Of course, circumstances, supplements, and forage will vary. Keep in mind that in a cold weather event, cold stress increases energy requirements and not protein. For more information on cold stress and nutrition, give me a call at the Wildcat Extension District, 620-784-5337. Thanks, Wendy. And now, here's David Scrantz, Natural Resource and Diversified Ag Agent, with her report. This is David Scrantz, one of the Agriculture and Natural Resource Agents from the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District of Crawford, Labette, Montgomery, and Wilson Counties with your K-State Research and Extension report. Two species of skunks are found in Kansas. The eastern spotted skunk has white splotches on its back and sides. However, now it is rarely found in Kansas and is fully protected as a threatened species under state regulations. The adult spotted skunk is 14 to 22 inches long and weighs from 3 quarters of a pound to 2 and 3 quarters pounds. The striped skunk is more common and is probably what comes to mind when most people picture a skunk. It has shiny black fur with two white stripes down its back. Striped skunks have varying amounts of white on the head, back, and tail. Adults are from 20 to 30 inches long, including their tail, and usually weigh between 3.5 and 10 pounds. 
Striped skunk's musk has a characteristic pungent odor. These shy, secretive animals discharge their scent only when disturbed or harassed. They are the least popular of all wild animals, yet they are beneficial because nearly half of their diet is insects, with the remaining part of their diet consisting of fruit and mice. Diets can vary depending on a skunk's location and the time of year. Skunk odor is difficult to neutralize and persists for a long time. Household products that help remove skunk odor include ammonia, bleach, vinegar, washing soda, laundry soap, smoke from cisternella candles, and canned tomatoes or tomato juice. However, do not mix ammonia and chlorine bleach as this combination may form a gas that is toxic if inhaled even in small amounts. To help prevent skunks from living close to your home, you can clean up and destroy any dens that may already be built and remove food sources by taking away any exposed pet food and making sure any garbage is in sealed containers and carrying off any wood piles that may be harboring mice and rats to move them farther away from the house. You can also block existing den openings that may be in foundations or under steps by using concrete with sheet metal or wire netting bent outward about 12 inches at the bottom to form an L shape. This will prevent skunks from burrowing under your house or porch. You can also destroy other den sites that may be nearby your home. These might be found in rock piles, piles of junk, old cars, and open culverts or pipes. From the K-State Research and Extension Wildcat District. Thank you, Adavin. And now, here is Jesse Gilmore with his report. With K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District, this is Jesse Gilmore bringing you this week's edition of the Hort Report. Windbreaks serve many functions on properties both large and small. They reduce soil erosion, protect crops, reduce energy consumption in the home, control snow accumulation, shelter livestock, provide habitats for wildlife, and beautify properties. However, it is important to build windbreaks correctly to achieve your desired goals. This is done by controlling the height, density, length, and orientation of your windbreak. Height is determined by the tallest tree species in your windbreak. Windbreaks reduce wind speeds up to 30 times their height downwind. The effective protection area of a multi-row windbreak will be based on the height of the tallest row. The density of the windbreak determines how much wind passes through. Denser windbreaks are paradoxically worse at reducing the impacts of wind thanks to air pressure. By forcing all of the wind up over the windbreak, a low pressure area forms on the back side and air is violently forced back down to fill the gap. This shrinks the effective area of the windbreak because the lower the air pressure, the faster the gusty air returns. Instead of maximizing density, small farmsteads should aim for 60 to 80% density, while crop fields should offer a windbreak with 40 to 60% density. Windbreaks should be oriented at a right angle against the prevailing winds. In the winter, these winds come from the northwest. 
In the summer, they come from the southwest. As the winds hit the windbreak, the wind will curve around the ends of the rows due to the aforementioned low pressure area. For this reason, windbreak lengths should be at least 10 times their maximum height. Windbreaks, quite literally, live or die by the selection of trees and shrubs grown in them. Multiple layers of plants are best for maintaining diversity in case of disease or insect pressures and reduce the severity of gaps in planting because of tree death. However, sometimes multiple rows of trees and shrubs are not feasible in smaller lots. A single row windbreak can still be effective as a windbreak, but proper maintenance and replacement of failed trees is essential to guarantee its effectiveness. Evergreens are preferred for their year-round foliage, but deciduous trees can still protect crops during the growing season, provide moderate wind protection while leaves are on the tree, and affect snow dispersal. Whether deciduous or evergreen, trees must be extremely tolerant of our unpredictable climate to maximize the chance of success. On bigger lots, your windbreak can have multiple rows, which increases its total density. The tallest species should always be in the row outward facing the prevailing winds. Each successive row inside the area you want to protect should be the next tallest species. By making each row a different species of tree or shrub, you increase the value of your windbreak to wildlife and reduce the chance of catastrophic loss to insect or diseases. Incorporating food plants into your windbreak gives you a potential food crop in addition to all the other benefits. Consider planting trees like pecans, persimmons, and pawpaws, and shrubs like buffalo currants, blueberries, and aronia into your windbreaks for a tasty alternative food source. For more information on today's topic, contact your local extension office. I can be reached at 620-724-8233 or by email at jr637 at ksu.edu. Thank you, Jesse, and thank you for listening to K-State Research and Extension's Wildcat District Ag Team on KGGF 690 Radio.